Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi there. We wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to thank you for listening. We really, really love getting to do this show and your support, whether it's by subscribing, leaving us a review, or supporting our advertisers is what makes it possible. We are ridiculously grateful. And I'm sorry that I'm going to do a whole like people are asking influencer energy thing here, but sometimes people do in fact ask us if there are other ways that they can support us. Friends, the answer is yes. Um, Our secret menu membership program is a once weekly members only newsletter that costs four bucks a month and your first month's fee goes straight to charity. We cover all sorts of topics. We're talking shopping, gifting, food, entertainment, even advice, and of course, snacks. You can sign up for it all at a thing or two hq.com to start receiving it. And you'll even get access to all the back issues you missed. And if you've made it this far without subscribing to our free Monday newsletter, well, what are you doing? Go ahead and rectify that also at a thing or two hq.com. If all of that sounds like too much effort, we get it. Maybe just take 15 seconds to go smash some stars for us in the rating section of Apple Podcasts. That helps a ton, truly. Thank you. Now on to the show. Welcome to A Thing or Two, a deep dive into stuff we think more people should know about. I'm Claire Mazer. And I'm Erica Cerullo. If you want more where this came from and want to support us in general, head to a thing or two hq.com and sign up for Secret Menu, which will get you weekly access to members-only content. To share your thoughts on this episode or anything at all, leave us a voicemail at 833-632-5463 or DM us on Instagram at a thing or two hq. Erica, two things we're going to cover in this episode, and I am so excited about both. We're going to talk about your coffee consumption, which is (laughs) truly long overdue given how bullied I was over my own coffee consumption um, at some point in time. And then because you drank coffee lying down, uh, (laughs) like in a specific seat that was specifically for, yeah, drinking coffee. Turns out I'm not the only one with specific coffee uh, Mm -hmm. habits, but I was also bullied over the volume. And it turns out that was, you know, a little bit of the pot calling the kettle black. I would say we'll get there. The other thing that's happening on this episode is we have Talia Hibbert, the romance novel author, um, who you and I have been consuming lots of content from, who is so good. Great core discovery for us. Great core discovery. Great core discovery. And it's such a good conversation. It's so good. But as we said, we're going to start with your coffee habits. Let's start with my coffee habits. I would like to, because I didn't get a a chance to respond. I would like to say, to come back to the idea mm-hmm. of the volume yeah. because I drink one to two cups of coffee a day. Okay. Well, I think part of what my concern, well, let's start with, let's start how with how can, this came up. Let's start how with this how this came up. came up, which is that I can't believe how many coffee making devices you have. I feel like once a quarter, it's like, I got this cute new coffee making device. And I'm like, <laughs> but you already had the other and like went. And the, the the reason that we decided to talk about this was because I finally asked you, how are you deciding when to use which coffee maker? Is it like, well, it's Tuesday, time to use the French press. <clears throat> well, let me provide some context. Mm-hmm. So listeners, I have a French press. I have used a French press to make coffee for as long as I have made my own coffee. So at least, you know, 15 years. Mm-hmm. We have a Bodum, the like classic Bodum French press coffee maker, the four cup one. We have two. Mm -hmm. 
we bought a second one when Thomas was living in Minneapolis for work. And I have to say that it's like wonderful to have two because I hate when one is dirty. And like, I hate taking the French press out of the dishwasher and cleaning it and like whatever. And again, like I'm spoiled. I have a dishwasher, whatever. But I I, agree though. I don't know. It is one of those pet peeve things. And when I wake up and they're both dirty, I feel like I, it's like I woke up on the wrong side of the bed. I do really feel like French presses aren't that expensive. And it's one of these things that like, it will improve your life so much relative to the cost of buying a second or even a third one. And it is so annoying when they're dirty. They're annoying to clean. They're just like gross by nature. And I do really... Thank you. I think it's a a fair complaint. Something we can agree on. Mm -hmm. Um, So we, this is what we make like most mornings. It it gets us each like a cup, a cup and a half of coffee. And I like the experience of like the shared device that you're sort of like passing back and forth and like reading newspaper. Yes. Um, Thomas and I were uh, fans of the television show, The Great Pottery Throwdown, which is basically like the Great British Bake Off for ceramics. Um, And one of the challenges was to make a French press, which they call a cafetiere. Um, which is like the French word that the Brits use. Um, Love that. Claire, the number of times they say on an episode, cafetiere, cafetiere, (laughs) cafetiere, it became like a like household joke. Right, because the the French can't call it a French press. That would be weird. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) But the Brits certainly could. They could if they wanted. But they don't want to. But they they also don't don't call them French fries. I think the Brits don't like calling things French. They don't want to give them credit. They call them, right? They call them, or no, wait, they They call call them chips. Chips, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's something going on there. There's There's a little bit of anti-French sentiment. (laughs) Although they're willing to use the French word. (laughs) Well, but but still, no, I don't think you're wrong. I'm not- Different thing just fully handing over credit, you know? Okay, so this is your morning. This is your morning coffee. This is how the day begins. Okay. We have an espresso machine. Mm -hmm. We got it when Thomas was in grad school. It was like a holiday gift from my parents. He was like a little bit like, why do we need this? Like feet draggy about it. Um, we have, I can't remember the model. I should have looked, but it's like one of the small ones. Like it's the little, I think it's called a pixie maybe even. Yes, totally. Okay. It's like one of the little guys. It is very nice as purely in my mind, like a caffeine delivery mechanism. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, I don't love the taste of the Nespresso pods or the Woken pods, which are ones that I've been using for a while. And I've been using them because they're compostable, which I will come back to. But sometimes when I just like, where I'm like, I just need coffee, this is like by far the fastest way to get that. And Mm -hmm. I usually just make the little like espresso shot version with a splash of milk or something. So this is a sort of in case of emergency, in case you're on your own situation, in case- You just in need case something quick. Stupid, both the French presses are uh, dirty, and I cannot okay. bring myself to okay. possibly contend with the washing mm-hmm. of the French press. Yep. Thomas uses, Thomas does just consume more caffeine than I do and just mm-hmm. like has a different tolerance, and he can drink like a, an espresso at 11 p.m. and go to sleep. Mm-hmm. So he will have this like more as like an afternoon thing or like okay. a midday thing. I had been using these Woken Pods because they are compostable, but I just learned recently that now in New York, at least, you can recycle Nespresso pods just like in your recycling. Yeah, it's beautiful. I used to have to put them in these UPS, like pre-addressed UPS envelopes and you would take them to the, like hand your UPS man, this dripping, disgusting (laughs) envelope of pods. And now you can just put them right in the recycling and it's a beautiful thing. Well, it's really smart. I'll I'll link to this article in the New York Times where I discovered this, that it's basically about this recycling bill in New York where they've been trying to get product manufacturers, all but like the littlest guys, to pick up the tab on the recycling for their packaging um, to encourage people to like make easier to recycle packaging and, you know, to like make the costs not come on to us, the taxpayers, but to the people making the products, which makes a ton of sense. And apparently a lot of the companies are on board with this. And ones like Nespresso are ones that have actually been proactively investing in recycling infrastructure. So they like 
worked with a company in New York to make like a $1.2 million investment to make the facility capable of recycling their pods, which is why this happens now. Which and, I love. Yeah, like, I do yeah, too. This is and great. I loved that even before they did this, they would all, you could ask them for as many UPS envelopes as you wanted and they would just send it with your pods. The other thing, and I was telling you this that I thought was really interesting when I was researching this because I haven't found a compostable pod that I like the coffee from and I do like the Nespresso ones. I found an article and we'll link to it that was basically like, the like hubbub around pods is sort of misdirected because hmm. the fact of the matter is that at least you're using the exact right amount of coffee grinds. And certain methods of making coffee use so much, so many more grounds that the environmental impact of that, of like the deforestation and the bean farming. The shipping like, of like beans across the country, you know, more beans than you need or whatever, whatever. That, but yeah. even really just the farming. Like yeah, think yeah, about yeah, how yeah. many farm, you know, and, and where these farms are, like in South America where rainforests are disappearing. And that like, yeah. if we can be really controlled and precise about the amount of beans that we need in each cup of coffee, then you can decrease the amount of coffee we need. And that like on a sort of macro level has a much bigger impact than like, are we recycling the pods or should we be using the pods or whatever? I mean, sustainability is complex. Truly. Shocking. Truly. Sho- a shocking revelation. But everybody just right. wants to know how they can recycle the thing. Exactly. No, it feels like the like argument that, you know, a lot of people are making right now that like, it's not about whether like one person decides to go vegan. It's like the government has to be making, then countries have to be making like really It's like about regenerative farming or it's yes. about like whatever that these like huge, huge global changes that will actually make the yeah. difference. Yeah. Okay. So I've had that Nespresso machine for years. Okay. And that, and, and it's like intermittently sporadically used by you yes, and more often by Thomas. It's not used every day. It's now that we're both like working at home, it's used probably like most work days, I okay. guess. We did acquire mm-hmm. recently a third device, which yep. I think is the one that you're referring to as the quarterly acquired <laughs> um, device. <laughs> this is the Gemini espresso maker that mm-hmm. the MoMA design store sells. I bought it, I will say, primarily because I think it is very cute. It I bought cute. it as a gift for Thomas, who really likes like Italian espresso and that experience and like the little, you know, like standing at a like bar in Rome drinking an espresso. Mm-hmm. And this was like, did I get it from for his birthday? Maybe I think it was like that point in the last year where I was like, this will feel like a vacation. Obviously, it doesn't feel like a vacation. <laughs> shocking, shocking. <laughs> weird, weird, weird. Uh, but it is very charming. It's the same like process as one of those little mochas where you put the grounds in and the water and it bubbles up through the coffee, mm-hmm. um, except that there are spouts at the top of it and it drips into little espresso cups instead of like filling the bowl at the top. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It comes with the little white espresso cups and plates that was a real win for me. And it's they, very romantic because it comes with two. It does, it, it makes two cups at a time. It's, it's very, very datey. It like felt like, yeah, it feels like, you know, it's like a thing. And that's how we treat it too. It's like that thing in the afternoon where it's like, do you want an espresso? And then we'll like make the espresso and stand in the kitchen and like talk for 10 minutes at, you know, 4 p.m. or whatever. I do think this is part of what's driving your PR problem when it comes to consumption specifically. Yeah. Because sometimes you and I will be on a call and Thomas will show up in the background and ma'am, it's like 4 p.m. And no sane person should be drinking a cup of coffee at 4 p.m. That is playing with fire. And I used to think so too, Claire, and I couldn't do it. But for whatever reason, I don't know if I just am like more tired now or older (laughs) or what it is, but I can drink coffee up until like 5 p.m. now without it being an issue. I would have never guessed. 5 p.m. I would have never guessed. Um, wow. I just, you're one of those. You're a rare breed. Well, I think that if, if it's like an espresso or like a small, it has, it can't be like a full cup of coffee. Okay. And it also, I think my issue is I like learned that that's better for me than having a second like coffee at like noon or something, which I used to do sometimes. Because the coffee that's at noon like it's too much, it's too close to the first one. Yeah, it would be like, a, it's a pile on, you know, it's just like, okay. it's okay. like, I'm layering too much caffeine on top of caffeine without anything in between. Okay, all right, I understand. I did find that this cute camping brand, GSI, makes this little like single espresso version of the mm-hmm. same device that is also very cute and charming should okay. you want just like the one, okay. the one person vibes. Um. So these are the three main members of your coffee family. That's right. 
Okay. These are the um, core and members. And they are all cute. They're all cute. Um, and then we have a bonus fourth. Um, yeah. Who he's just a real special treat scenario. It's like a cousin that drops in every once in a while. A hundred percent. This is the copper cow coffee, like Vietnamese style pour over situation started by this woman, Debbie Mullen, who is Vietnamese American and in California. And the premise is to make this like as environmentally friendly as Mm -hmm. possible. Um, So it comes with these like packets of sweetened condensed milk. And there are a lot of flavors and stuff. I, I like the like classic original. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are these little like paper and mesh devices that you prop over your cup of coffee and do pour over into. Okay. It's a very satisfying experience. Mm-hmm. Like it feels like, you know, you watch a drip. It's like pleasant. It just, it like, it feels like a treat. And it's like also mm-hmm. very sweet because it's sweetened condensed yep. milk. So it's like a weekend desserty thing. Right. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. I love this. I, you know, I think I'm trying to think what the parallel is because I relate to the the rationalizing and the the thinking around it in general. I think it's like probably most similar to how I buy like exercise gear and mm. workout adjacent things in general. I'm like, well, those are the resistance bands that you use for like weight training, but those are the resistance bands that you like wrap around your legs for like, you know, more like Pilates style stuff. Totally, and then totally. This one pound weight is a dumbbell, but this one pound weight wraps around my ankles. And so I need all of them. Well, you as can't you can. lift a dumbbell with your ankle. That's right. So, um, and listen, you can't have cute coffee if it's not a Gemini espresso maker. So I similar. agree. Yeah. I agree. On a follow-up episode, we can talk about like which, which mugs get used for important <laughs> for which. Listen, no, we've already discussed mugs at length on this <laughs> podcast and we'll do it again if we need to. If we need to, it might yeah. be required. Should That's we bring right. our guest Talia on? Let's do it. Oh my gosh. Talia Hibbert is a USA Today and Wall Street Journal bestselling author who writes very steamy, diverse romances because she believes that people of marginalized identities need honest and positive representation. And we believe that everyone needs to read her books. Um, She began self-publishing in 2017 and she released her first nine books within one year, which is wild. Absolutely wild. Then in 2019, she wrote a traditionally published book called Get a Life, Chloe Brown, which was the first of her Brown Sisters trilogy, which we just love. Mm-hmm. Her second, Take a Hint, Danny Brown, we have mentioned before. And her newest is Act Your Age, Eve Brown, which was just released this month. There are loads of Talia books to get into, and we can't wait to get into all of them with her. Thank you so much to Clarence for sponsoring today's episode. Listeners, we have a real treat for you today. What a treat. It will I, be more of a treat for me than for you listeners. And, and it will be a true treat for Erica. It's a visual treat for <laughs> you and I, Claire. So yeah. I, because of, you know, this, this Clarins total eye lift product, it like lifts your the skin around your eyes in like 60 seconds. Well, guess what? Our ad's plenty long enough to see the effects. <laughs> We're going to see the effects. We have been talking about this. So this product does all sorts of things. It deals with eye puffiness. It deals with crow's feet and fine lines. But the thing that we have been screaming at you about, about this product is that (laughs) it is truly amazing that you can put it on and it immediately takes away that puffiness that at least for me happens pretty much every morning now, regardless of whether or not I ate something salty, regardless of whether or not I drank something. I do feel like it's already working, Erica. Claire, it's been like 15 seconds. The clock is like ticking. Okay, keep going. Keep okay, going, keep all right. Going, so we'll reevaluate. <laughs> right. Okay. So it's called Total Eye Lift. It does it all. It works right away. It's a plant based formula fueled by ingredients of 94% natural origin, including their exclusive new Lift Smoothing Duo, which is a blend of organic harangana extract and cassie flower wax. You don't even have to rub it in. Erica just demonstrated, although none of you saw it, that you just like really pat it in with the end of your fingertips like they do at the spa. With your index finger, the gentle one, the gentle one. That's right. You put it like around your eyes, under your eyes, over your eyelids. You can even put it onto your lashes. It's safe for all ages and skin types, including contact lens wearers and those with sensitive eyes. So give your eyes a visible lift in 60 second flats. Erica, what do you think? We're like 60 seconds in now, right? Would you say? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I had like a crease under my eye before. It's not there anymore. It's really incredible. Discover more at ClarenceUSA.com. Get 10% off with the purchase of Total Eye Lift by using code a thing or two. That's 10% off with purchase of Total Eye Lift by using code a thing or two. 
Thank you so much to Stitch Fix for sponsoring today's episode. You and I were talking to a friend the other day mm-hmm. who, who was feeling like, okay, I like haven't really bought clothes in the last year. Yeah. I'm in the mood for something new, but I don't really know how to do this anymore. And is the answer <laughs> Googling $200 dress? Like, is that what you do? She was Which, like, no, I really wasn't not. sure. She said, I, I feel like I'm in a headspace where I'm willing to spend $200 on a dress, but I really couldn't figure out what to do other than Google $200 dress which was remarkable. And then she found a $200 dress, but said, and then I wasn't sure what to do with it. And our other friend said, you just buy it and you wear it, (laughs) which is easier for some people than for others. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. It seems like this could be a good use for Stitch Fix. Yeah, Um, for sure. I do. Stitch Fix is an online styling service and you fill out a questionnaire. They have expert stylists that will then select clothes for you. They send it to you. You keep what you want. You send back what you don't. You want to send back everything? Fine. You want to keep everything? Fine. But it solves both of these problems that our friend was just articulating. One, like, how do I even find the clothes I want? And two, what am I supposed to wear them with? And the stylists at Stitch Fix are thinking about all of this. They're like, we're going to send you stuff you can wear together. We're going to send you stuff that responds to your needs, whether those needs are budgetary, like aesthetic, functional, whatever it is. There's no subscription required. You can try it once or you can set up automatic deliveries. You pay a $20 styling fee for each box, which gets credited towards the pieces you keep. There are no hidden fees ever. Stitch Fix has styles and clothing to fit any occasion for women, men, and kids. The kids thing is genius. So smart, so useful because like the idea of shopping for kids just feels outrageous to me. (laughs) I spend so much time on it and I happen to love it, but I can't imagine most people do. No, no. Stitch Fix ships all over the U.S. and they're available in the U.K. as well. So get started at stitchfix.com slash a thing or two and you'll get 25% off when you keep everything in your fix. That's stitchfix.com slash a thing or two for 25% off when you keep everything in your fix. stitchfix.com slash a thing or two. Thank you so much for supporting the advertisers who make it possible for us to bring you this show for free by using the unique links and codes that they create for us. Hi, I'm Pia Berengini, the creative director of LPA, an entrepreneur, a wife, and a dog mom based in Los Angeles. This is my new podcast, Everything is the Best, where we basically ask interesting people, how did you go from zero to yacht? I'm always curious how the hell people became successful, and I figured you would be too. Get on the internet with me. Let's laugh, let's cry, let's overshare, and let's get inspired to live our best lives. Check out new episodes every Wednesday. It's all for you, baby. Thanks for listening. Love you, mean it. Talia, thank you so much for joining us today. We are both such big fans of your books. Um, and I feel like they've been a real assist in getting through quarantine for us. That's exactly what they've been. We we both just finished Act Your Age, Eve Brown. We just like love, love, love your work and are so excited to talk to you about it. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> of course. What, what made you want to start writing romance novels? Because you've written a ton. Um, I honestly... I kind of always wanted to be a writer. It was a bit of a dream for me. And when I eventually decided to start doing it, romance was the only genre I could have really handled because romance is just all I read. Mm. And I feel like that really impacts, you know, what you write. Yep. What drew you to reading romance? <laughs> well, I actually, I found my first romance completely by accident at the local library when I was 12. Um, it was a bit of a surprise but after I got over my (laughs) pearl clutching shock I was like actually that is amazing (laughs) and I've been reading it ever since because I just you know previously I would kind of skip through certain parts of a book to get to the parts where people were talking to each other and thinking about Mm. each other and focusing on connections and suddenly I found this genre where that was always at the forefront so I just stuck with it. Wow I love that way of framing romance novels. I feel like romance novels have been a more sort of like recent deep dive for both Erica and I where, you know, we'd read them for sure. And then something about the pandemic was just like, I need this level of escapism. And it's been really fascinating seeing the different ways that people frame romance novels and the way that that's changing and thinking about it as like having human connection at its core is a really lovely way of of framing it. What made you start off by self-publishing? Uh, a few things. First of all, I really didn't think that traditional publishing was an option for me. And I had never really thought that 
because, you know, you're aware kind of of what you see being published, you're aware of the world in general. And then on top of that, you have people telling you it's really hard to be a writer and it's really rare for anyone to be successful at it. And as a black girl, I take that and I'm like, and also I'm black, so it's Mm going to be even harder for me. So from the very beginning, I was like, I'm not going to bother with that. That's ridiculous. But I also knew that I wanted to, you know, kind of make a job of romance writing. And that for me meant first and foremost, being able to make money off it as quickly as possible. And so the self-publishing model appealed to me because I knew that I could try something and see if it had worked or not very quickly. And I could give myself, you know, a year when I started, I was just about to begin the last year of my degree. And I knew I could give myself that year to try and make it into a permanent job. And self-publishing would make that a lot quicker and easier to see if it was going to work for me or not. How did you go about finding an audience when you were self-publishing? Oh, with great difficulty, I feel. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine. (laughs) Yeah. Um, The great thing, well, one of the many great things about self-publishing is because you know, especially in romance, you have this community of people who have been doing it so long and who have kind of pioneered it as a business. And for some reason, they are kind enough to splash their experiences and their advice all over the place. So I was just kind of rushing through the internet, hoovering up everything I could find and trying and testing it and seeing if it was going to work for me. Um, And the main thing I feel was making sure that my marketing and my actual books had a very tight connection You know, I think some people, especially when they're writing about stories or even identities that they don't feel quote unquote sell, they have this temptation to slap different packaging on it and try and lure people into something by pretending it's something it's not. Mm -hmm. And I understand why people feel that temptation, but all that's going to happen is people are going to read your book and be like, oh, this has that thing I hate. And especially if it's because they're in some way prejudiced you're not going to trick them into being unprejudiced by getting to read your book, right? So you just need to find your audience and you might worry that that's small, but as long as you stay true to what you're writing and stay true to who you want your reader to be, you know, you'll be surprised by by how big those small audiences really are. How did that sort of thinking change for you or have to adapt when you started working with a traditional publisher for the Brown Sister series? I feel like in the... How long was it? I think it was a couple of years um, after I started publishing that I wound up working with a traditional publisher. And during that short time, largely because I was now a part of the industry and I was seeing a lot more of it and knowing a lot more about it, I realized that things were developing and improving in terms of diversity and inclusivity in publishing more than I had thought that they were. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that helped a lot, but also, you know, in those two short years between when I started and when I signed, there was a lot of growth in that period. And there are a lot of authors and also, you know, people behind the scenes, editors and people in the marketing teams who I feel had really been working hard to make the changes in romance that we're kind of seeing today. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's ongoing. And I think observing that is partly what gave me the confidence to actually take the opportunity to go trad when it came up. And also, I think having grown in confidence myself, I kind of reached the point where I was like, okay, so supposedly people like me and books about people like me don't sell, Mm -hmm. but I think that they can. Yeah. Well, (laughs) Um, and you'd shown that they had for you. Yeah. But, you know, also as a reader, it's like, I can't think as a, as an author, this isn't going to sell, but then be devouring it as a reader. That doesn't make sense. Right. Like obviously there's a disconnect. So I just had to trust that and trust in readers basically. Why do you think the, the market for romance novels has been changing? Like what's been driving that? And, and what does that change look like? I think that, well, I think it depends, you know, I think there have been a couple of perceived changes in the market for romance. I think that there's been a, a difference in the focus on diversity and inclusion. And then I think there's also been a change in terms of romance maybe becoming more broadly accepted by the mainstream, you know, with like the the illustrated covers and Mm -hmm. finally getting attention from more serious publications and things like that. Those are two things that I've noticed simultaneously. And I wonder if the diversity is kind of informing and enriching the, the broadening appeal of the genre. 
Well, mm-hmm. well I really think it is, but um, I'm not like data smart enough to be able to prove <laughs> it, but <laughs> I know it in my heart. Can we <laughs> talk about the cover thing for a second? Because that's oh, so yeah. interesting to me. Like, I, And you've had really disparate covers in, in your own work, right? Like you, you have a number of books that have covers that look like sort of what you expect when you go to the romance novel section. And the Brown Sisters series, which are these more recent ones that you've done with a traditional publisher, have sort of highly Instagrammable, very sort of millennial feeling illustrations on the cover, as do a ton of the romance novels that are coming out these days. And is there a real difference between like those two? Is it, it are these types of novels? Is it just the cover art? The packaging. That, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I feel like this is such a controversial topic. <laughs> I didn't know. I, I didn't even know. That's why I'm thrilled for you to talk about it because I'm so curious about it. I think the illustrated covers started as a very specific marketing tool. Mm-hmm. And it was so successful that like a lot of publishing trends, it's now being used for everything mm-hmm. in an attempt to snatch up some of that success, whether it technically applies or not. Yep. And this kind of goes back to what I was saying about when I was learning about self-publishing and I had to really target my audience and not try and lure them in with something they, they weren't getting what they were actually getting. I think that the illustrated cover definitely I don't know, to some people, it conveys like rom-com vibes. To other people, it leans kind of more women's fiction. I understand both perspectives because here in the UK, it's very normal for romance novels to have illustrated covers and it always has been. Hmm. Um, But at the same time in the UK, romance isn't always what a lot of American readers would consider genre romance. A lot of the time it does lean more towards women's fiction or towards like a a film version of a rom-com rather than like Bridget Jones vibe. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I I understand all the different things it's meant to convey, but I think that at the minute and the reason why it's so controversial is that readers have gone the idea that it means one thing, for example, that it means a rom-com because they've been told this is a rom-com. So then they pick up a new book with an illustrated cover and actually it's not a rom-com and they're like, okay, what? (laughs) (laughs) And I think, you know, that's just publishing doing what publishing always does. It wants the trend because it wants the trend's popularity and it's going to, it's like a stepsister squeezing her foot into the shoe, whether it fits or not. So I hope, I hope that wasn't mean. I'm just speaking generally. No, I I think it's so interesting. The book cover trend stuff is so interesting in general. And like, you can always track when, you know, a bestseller with two bestsellers hit that have floral covers, then Mm -hmm. the flood of floral covers that come after. It's just (laughs) like, come on guys. That doesn't mean people are just going to run out and buy this book. Right. Or maybe it will. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? (laughs) Who knows? The other is you've touched on this in a couple of your answers so far, but you know, the other topic that I don't even know if it's controversial, but it's certainly a hot topic in the world of romance is the issue of diversity amongst authors and and the lack of it and the way that the industry has not supported authors of color in general. And there have been um a lot of New York, you know, New York Times articles covering what's happening with this. There was sort of a hubbub with the Romance Writers of America, which is the sort of, I guess, trade group around this who are accused of racism. And our pals at the Ripped Bodice, a romance novel book, a romance bookstore in LA have been publishing reports on the diversity of the industry. So as a Black woman, what has been your experience of this and has it been changing at all? I do feel like over time, you know, since I started reading, I feel like I've seen a very slow but steady increase in diversity and romance. Mm -hmm. And right now it feels kind of like, you know, you try and fill a bucket drip by drip and there's always that eventual tipping point where you filled the bucket and it overflows Mm. and I think we're maybe experiencing an overflow point and at that point it's very easy to forget all the drips absolutely the romance genre is a completely different landscape from the one I grew up you know experiencing and it's even changed in the short period of time since I've been writing romance and that leads me to believe that it's going to continue to change for the better you know we've got some speed going now So we're not going to just stop. One of the other things I've been noticing in reading romance novels is the way that explicit consent has been pushed forward by romance novels and and by writers of romance novels. And you do a very good job of writing explicit consent in a way that feels like very sexy and like fun. How do you think that your work and the work of other romance writers 
is changing the way that people talk about and experience consent in their own relationships? I think that romance has been really integral on my development and understanding of relationships. Mm. As I mentioned before, I started reading it when I was very young and it absolutely directly influenced the way I approached relationships and the things I expected from other people and how I expected to be treated. So I do think, or rather I know firsthand that romance has that power. And I definitely think that, you know, explicit consent in romance is affecting people in real life because purely based on the number of times people bring it up, you know, and the Mm -hmm. fact that it's something they notice, that kind of proves that maybe it's been something lacking in one or more areas of their lives previously. And I think whenever a genre brings something to the consciousness or the notice of its readers, it's definitely making a change in the psyche of those readers because art influences, I feel, how we communicate with each other and how we see the world. How did you get comfortable writing about sex in general? And like, how do you approach it? Well, I think just reading so much romance made me very comfortable with sex on the page. But funnily enough, you know, in real life, I am way behind that. So in my family, we really, we do not ever talk about sex. So, (laughs) But (laughs) do your parent, does your family read your books or you're just like, no, 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 no. Okay. He's <laughs> like, that's not happening. Yeah, the look on your face when you're like, absolutely not. <laughs> I thought I was going to get a like, yes, they read it, but it's a little bit of like, we just don't talk about it. We all no. know it's there, but we're not going to discuss it. It's like, no, they're not allowed to read the book. No. I mean, my mom is Sierra Leonean. I, anyone listening to this who has West, West African parents, <laughs> you know exactly what I'm talking about. That's not happening. She loves me. She supports me. She knows what's going on, but she doesn't want to know what's going on. You know what? That honestly feels ideal to me because it sounds very other, healthy. It sounds very healthy. She knows it's there and you've both agreed that she's not going to engage with it because the other part, the other option is that your parents have read it and you're like, are we going to talk about this or not? And we're just like, and that doesn't feel fun to me either. This way you're both on the same page. Everybody's being open. Everybody's being their authentic selves and you don't have to grapple with your mom having read it. Yeah. I mean, my dad is, he also hasn't read it, but he's slightly different in that I didn't tell him that I was writing romance. Mm -hmm. I told my aunts and I told my grandmother and I let that trickle down to him. And so he knows, and I know he knows, but we have never had to have that conversation. And I appreciate that. (laughs) I love it. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much to Lesser Evil for sponsoring today's episode. Erica, I know, and you know, that being a snack influencer is a joy. It is a privilege, a joy. but it An comes, honor. it, it's also a responsibility and absolutely there are almost every privilege is a responsibility. <laughs> there are occasional drawbacks. I think both of our husbands have started to roll their begrudge. eyes, begrudge. begrudge a little bit. The fact that we have had to have basically like excess storage for the amount of snacks we're being sent, not to brag, not to brag. I mean, you're um, bragging. There's it's <laughs> undeniably a brag. <laughs> I, the other day, hit a Snackfluencer milestone. Um, Tell again, me. Not to brag, just telling the truth. I ran out of chip clips. I was like, I guess we wow. have to buy more chip clips. Yeah. Um, no big deal. However, I have to say that as much as there has been some grumbling in my house about, oh, we have too many of this and too many of that, both myself and my husband feel that there's absolutely never too much of the lesser evil. Claire, not my husband either. And you know, he's been a real griper. The other day he said something like, no, all of the lesser evil snacks are exceptional. They <laughs> are. I did a thing with you. The th- I like, I, I'm always, they sent us a ton. They have so many different flavors and varieties and everything. I, we've been like slowly making our way through this thing. And I like ran upstairs the other day to slack you to be like, but have you tried the vegan ranch veggie curls? And you were like, no. And then Christmas, the veggie curls didn't seem all that appealing to me, like given the other stuff we were working with, but you are absolutely correct. They're delicious. That ranch flavoring. Chris came up and was like, can I try those? And I was like, yes, they're amazing. And then he started eating. He was like, what this is? And like (laughs) lost his mind. I don't even like ranch. I'm a blue cheese girl, but these are are. phenomenal. I was like, and it's just- 
the hits just keep on coming with Lesser Evil. I We loved them before they were sponsored. Now that we've tried literally every skew they have to offer, I can fully say this, as Thomas said, exceptional. All of them are exceptional. Exceptional product. If you do not know Lesser Evil yet, Lesser Evil is on a mission to inspire mindful snacking by making healthier, less processed, earth-friendly snacking accessible to everyone. They believe that ingredients mean everything and that less is more. So they partner with organic farms and thoroughly vetted vendors across the world to get the cleanest, highest quality ingredients possible. Their premium ingredients are minimally processed to make super clean, super tasty snacks. And Lesser Evil wants to be the most sustainable snack company on the planet, from the farm to the factory. They own their own facilities in Danbury, Connecticut, and participate in statewide energy efficiency initiatives, package their snacks in biodegradable NEO plastic, and compost almost all of their waste. You can't see through the packaging, but you can see through their process. All of Lesser Evil snacks are USDA organic, non-GMO project certified grain-free, and low in sugar. And with plenty of vegan, paleo, and keto options, you can always like find something that suits your dietary needs or sensitivities. From better ingredients to greener processes, Lesser Evil is committed to taking every small step possible to create a more ethical future of food. Through simple acts and clean snacks, Lesser Evil hopes to make the world a little more good. You can find Lesser Evil in regional grocery stores nationwide and nationally at Whole Foods Market, but they're for the full array of products and as we've mentioned, we recommend going through the full array of products. We do. Visit their online shop at www.lesserevil.com. Lesser Evil is offering an exclusive deal to podcast listeners. Take 25% off your first one-time order at lesserevil.com with the code a thing or two. That's 25% off your first one-time order with the code a thing or two at lesserevil.com. How do you approach actually writing a sex scene? Um, Or how do you think about like what you want to convey in those moments of creating that sense of connection that you create in your work? I feel like, first of all, you have to remember that it's very personal to the characters involved because a lot of the time, you know, writing a romance, writing a sex scene is a very high pressure endeavor because (laughs) nowhere else in your book is there going to be a more potentially terrible section to write? Mm-hmm. Like if you get it wrong, people will be very upset and the reading experience will be very bad. So sometimes it's tempting to be like, okay, this, this, and this is sexy. So I'm going to put that in there and it's going to be great. But if that has nothing to do with the characters and who they are and how they interact with each other outside of sex scenes, then it's not going to be authentic and it's going to fall flat and it's going to pull the reader out of the experience. So I think trying to make it organic is the most important thing because you know to my mind one of the key reasons why I like to include sex scenes is that I'm showing you all the key elements of communication that make these characters work together and I believe them having sex is one of those elements of communication so I'm going to show you that as well but I I want to make sure that yeah that it is communication but also obviously that it's hot so I guess it's a balance Do you have, are you like, I'm going to get the sex scenes out of the way first. I'm going to leave them until last. Or is it just like, we deal with them as they come up? Can you tell what parts we're hung up on? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just focus on the sex. (laughs) I always write chronologically. I think there've been like two times that I've written something non-chronologically and I've like, oh, who am I? And it's been very uncomfortable. Um, (laughs) So it's kind of when I get to the scene, I've got like this momentum building up, this tension that's leading towards the scene. So I have to do it then. Otherwise I get kind of lost and my, I lose my flow. So yeah. Yeah. You get like cold feet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, to shift topics a little bit, um, something you did bring up before, you, your books are the Brown Sisters books, feature characters of varying race, ethnicity, body shape, sexual orientation, life experience. And that does feel very new for the genre, at least for like a sort of not full-time reader like me. I'm wondering, are there other sort of topics or experiences that you feel like have been neglected by the genre that you'd like to see covered or that you want to cover yourself? Mm. I feel like You know, for me, there's a definite split in my romance reading experience from when I was younger and I was getting my books from the library to the point when I got old enough and, you know, technology developed enough for me to order ebooks online. 
And that's when I discovered kind of indie authors or authors who were at smaller presses who weren't getting a lot of the attention, but who, if you searched certain keywords, you could stumble across. And that was a real change in my reading because that's the point when I was finding books that actually reflected people like me or people like my friends and family who I know these people and I love them, but I'm just not seeing them in these romance worlds. So that was when I kind of realized that it was out there. It just wasn't being given as much attention. And that shift in attention is, I think, what sparked a lot of the perceived changes in romance recently. So I feel like, honestly, for every kind of experience or marginalized identity I can think of, I can think of at least one romance that's focused on that. But the question that's is, so good. is that the romance that's in yeah. the magazines? Yeah, but yeah, 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 I do think romance is actually very inclusive purely because it's such a, a diverse genre in every sense of the word. You know, anything can be a romance as long as it has a relationship and a happy ending. So there's so many different romances. When you're writing about characters who experience things like chronic pain or depression or autism, how much are you drawing from personal experience? How much uh, research are you doing to create those characters and to make sure those experiences feel sort of universal? Um, I hate research. So, so, you know, if I'm trying to represent something, that's probably the only part of the book that I actually will research. Mm -hmm. Because, for example, if I'm writing a barista and I get the coffee part wrong, which I don't think I do because I was a barista, but for example, (laughs) um, I don't care if baristas around the world are like mortally offended. I'm sorry, but I don't. Um, But if I kind of really mess up representation of something that is a part of people's identity or means something or can hurt people, you know, obviously that I care about. So that's where all my research goes into. And I tend for that same reason to try and draw on personal experience as much as possible, because I feel like when you're doing that, you're less likely to do something heinous because you're more well-placed to speak authentically on the subject. Yeah. So you know, like um, in Actor Age, Eve Brown, both the main characters are autistic and I am autistic, but I'm not the same as them because they're right. other people. <laughs> so I kind of started from that place of experience and then researched in various different ways to build on that. Are there certain tropes in romance novels that you just love and feel really attached to and feel like, you know, you want to make sure that you include them in your books? I love tropes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like a trope addict. (laughs) Um, Yes, definitely. I love false proximity. I feel like Mm. there's some form of false proximity in all of my books. Yes, yes. It's great. It's like a crucible (laughs) and then everything explodes. Um, So always. I also really love kind of meddling families or even friends who are like family. You know, I just like external forces who push the main characters very lovingly. Mm -hmm. Um, and also one of my favorite kind of categories of trope is when the characters know each other before the story starts so whether Mm. that's because it's friends to lovers or even enemies to lovers like Danny Brown vibes yeah yes I just like them to be like familiar yeah I love you mentioned you know as long as there's a happy happily ever after and I think one of the reasons that Claire and I have really been drawn to romance especially during this moment is like that satisfying that knowing of being like I know how this will end and I need that like comfortable blanket that that will provide can you talk about the role and like the power of the HEA in the romance world I honestly feel like it's what you said like the safety blanket you know from a reader's perspective It allows me to read things that I simply couldn't read in other genres, like um, Nalini Singh's Psy Changeling series. I love sci-fi. I love speculative fiction, but the stakes are always so high. I have anxiety. I can't deal with that, right? Me too. (laughs) But in Nalini Singh's work, because it's a romance, I can read about people like nearly dying. I can read about worlds collapsing. And I'm like, it's okay because it's a romance. So I can get through this. It's safe. And the flexibility that that gives me as a reader, I definitely feel on the flip side as a writer as well. Like I know I can do all kinds of ridiculous, terrible things because it's a romance. It's all going to turn out fine. And like you said, now more than ever, I think a lot of people need that. And, you know, me being a lifelong romance reader, I'm the kind of person who needs that all the time. It's just my (laughs) personality. (laughs) 
<laughs> I think everyone needs it sometimes. Have you read The Idea of You by Robin Lee? I don't think so. I was waiting, Claire. Yeah. I was like, well, because <laughs> Erica set this up, up this as if this is why, but this is like, it doesn't have a happy ending. And it's such a good romance novel. It's one of our favorites that we've read recently. Um, it doesn't have a happy ending and it is like really crushing and yet so good still. And and you still want to like live in this world and keep reading it over and over. But um, yeah, I'd love for you to read it and tell us what you think about it because it 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 breaks the rules. But okay. but again, it doesn't have a happy ending. We're telling you right now. Yeah. So it will not be that like blanket, <laughs> that like safety blanket either. I mean, I've been hearing about um, well, there's a similar book called Honey Girl, okay. um, which I really want to read, but I've been hearing that it also doesn't have a happy ending. But I'm like, but it's obviously gonna be good. And if I know, surely right. I'll be okay. Right. <laughs> this yeah. is the thing. This mm-hmm. is the thing. Mm-hmm. What are the other books and authors in romance that you're excited about? Oh my gosh. Um, I love romance so much. I feel like I could talk about this all day. Um, Okay, so Kennedy Ryan has a book coming out called Real, which is about Hollywood, like as in a film reel, not like Mm. real. Great. Um, Super excited. I love Kennedy Ryan. And those are very like, everything she writes is very, what's my word? Like epic romance vibes. Mm. KJ Charles is another one of my favorite authors and she like tweeted today this book is coming along really well and I was like (laughs) quickly (laughs) give it to me now (laughs) (laughs) like no pressure but immediately please Um, (laughs) I'm really excited about the next Vanessa Riley book that's coming out she started this historical kind of rom-com series with this book a duke the lady and a baby and it was just the most incredible romp and I was like this is my life now so I've just been waiting for the next one (laughs) um and there's also a book coming out that I've already read called The Jasmine Throne by Tasha Suri and I've read it but what I'm excited about is for everyone else to read it so I can be like right Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, amazing as a romance expert what's your take on Bridgerton I haven't watched it you haven't watched it. Oh my it. gosh. <laughs> is it available in the UK yet? It must be, right? Um, I, I believe it is because it's on Netflix. The yes. trouble is that yeah. I don't have Netflix. I okay. did, um, I canceled my Netflix subscription in a fit of peak over something else. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Fine. Okay. Fine. Are there other TV or movie romances that you enthusiastically endorse? Let me see. The the problem I have is I love reading romance novels, but then when I'm watching it. I'm usually like, you did this wrong. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, but I, I did really like the latest Emma adaptation. Me um, too. Yes, it was it's so beautiful. Funny. Yeah, oh, funny yeah. and beautiful. Stunning. Yeah, yeah. I really liked that one. And that was the last film that I saw before lockdown and COVID. So it has a special place in my heart. <laughs> <laughs> truly, truly, truly. <laughs> Talia, this has been amazing. If you have not read Talia's books yet, get on that. We've loved everything that we've read so far. Get a life, Chloe Brown. Take a hint, Danny Brown. Act your age, Eve Brown. Everything she comes out with next. So here for all of this. Thank you. Thank you. That's the show. (laughs) This has been a production of Dear Media. You can follow us on Instagram at a thing or two HQ. You can listen to us wherever podcasts are found like Stitcher, iTunes, and Spotify. If you have ideas for the show or want to advertise, email podcast at a thing or two HQ.com. Find show notes and much more on a thing or two HQ.com. <laughs> <laughs>